I want everybody to shout happy Mother's Day on the count of three. One, two, three. Happy Mother's Day. Amen. We love you so much. And I'm going to preach a Mother's Day message today. And this same message is going out right now on our streaming services. And, and I want to first of all talk to you today about how Mother's Day came to be. My message is going to be entitled, The Characteristics of a Godly Mother. The first Mother's Day was celebrated in 1908 when Anna Jarvis held a memorial for her mother at St. Andrew's Methodist Church in Grafton, West Virginia. Her campaign to make Mother's Day a recognized holiday in the United States began in the year 1905. That's 115 years ago. The year her mom, Anne Reeves Jarvis, passed away. You see, her mother had lived during the Civil War and cared for wounded soldiers on both sides of the conflict, whether they were red or gray. I'm sorry, blue or gray, did not matter. And she created, literally, Mother's Day work clubs before there was a Mother's Day to address public health issues. Anna Jarvis wanted to honor her mom by continuing the work that she had started. And so what she did is she set out to set aside a day to honor all mothers because she believed, and I quote, a mother is the person who has done more for you than anyone in the world. And I think nearly everybody in this building would agree with that in terms of people who have lived and and made a contribution to our lives. There's nobody like a mom. I mean, the truth is, dads, how many times have we seen it? Your, your little child gets hurt or crying and, and needs comfort, and you hold out your arms, and they go right around you and go straight to mama. Amen. That's just the way that it is. Anna Jarvis wanted to honor her mom, so in 1908, she it was brought before the U.S. Congress, and they literally rejected a proposal to make Mother's Day an official holiday, joking that they would also have to proclaim a mother-in-law day. Amen. However, owing to her efforts, because she did not give up, by 1911, all U.S. states observed the holiday, with some of them officially recognizing Mother's Day as a local holiday, the first being West Virginia, Jarvis's home state in 1910. And finally, after all the states had recognized it as a local holiday in 1914, President Woodrow Wilson signed a proclamation designating an official Mother's Day to be held on the second Sunday in May as a national holiday to give mothers the honor and recognition they needed. And I'm so glad that we honor our mothers Because if there ever was an indispensable element that is necessary, that is the glue that holds society together, it's mothers. They literally are the glue that holds society intact. In Scripture, there is a very fascinating story about moms in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. It says that now there was a certain man of Ramathion, Zophim, I would dare you to say that about 20 times real fast, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite, and he had two wives. Anybody see any problems brewing? 
right away. Amen. Their culture permitted them to have two wives and even more, and it brought conflict. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. We just added another layer to the conflict that existed in that home. Father, I pray that you would speak to us and that your word would be open to our understanding that we can glean from it those eternal principles of truth that are so profound and that they transcend generations, centuries, time, even millennials. And if we apply them and to our own lives and align our lives with them, they bring us incredible benefits. Help us to see these today in Jesus' name. And everybody shouted and said, Amen. The book of 1 Samuel is primarily a book about three men. It's about Samuel, the prophet, King Saul, and a young shepherd boy who grows up by the name of David. But though the book is about three men, it begins with a woman. The truth is, is that nearly everything good or evil in Scripture begins with a woman. I realize that women might appreciate the first part of that statement, but not necessarily the second. They appreciate the fact that nearly everything good does begin with a woman. They might question the second part where I said that nearly everything evil begins with a woman as well. But it really is true if you think about it. And what this does is it speaks to the incredible power that God has invested in the position that is held by those of the feminine gender. Women are not only chosen by God to birth children, but they also birth movements and they cause shifts to occur that are fundamental to the existence of societies and nations. My father-in-law was a very godly and kind man. I, I loved him so much. He's going to be with the Lord, but every once in a while, just to remind everybody of his position, he would kind of, you know, inhale and puff out his chest and he would say, I want you to know that I'm the head of this house and this family. And my mother-in-law would smile sweetly and with a twinkle in her eye, she would say, yes, but I'm the neck that turns that head. And she was. And every woman in this building know that's just the way it works. Amen. We sometimes overlook that fact, especially we men. For example, the lineage of Christ begins, and we've always heard it was, it was called through Abraham's seed. It was. But it begins also with a woman by the name of Sarah. That part gets overlooked. That may sound rather obvious because after all, Isaac had to have a mom. But did you know that just like God chose Abraham, he also chose Sarah to be the mother? Abraham had a son with Hagar after Sarah was unable to conceive. That in itself is a very strange thing. And they did things different back then. She couldn't conceive. So she went, Sarah went to her husband and said, I've got this beautiful young uh, servant girl. Go in and, and, and make her pregnant. And I can hear Abraham almost say, well, I don't want to, but if you insist. And, you know, and, and if they did things different back then. That's one thing my wife would never tell me to do. And I don't think any other woman would in this building either. But a son was born of that relationship. It is possible, and the potential literally existed for Abraham to have the son from whose descendants would be named the Messiah. 
and through whom he would someday come. It is entirely possible that that could have been the result of the union with Hagar or any number of other different women. But then God specifically says to Abraham in Genesis twenty-one twelve that through Isaac, the son of Sarah, his seed would be called. We always talk about Abraham being the father of the faith, but we must remember there was a mother of the faith as well. God chose Sarah to carry and birth and nurture the lineage of the promised Messiah. The power of women to conceive and use this power to birth good or evil into the world actually begins in the book of Genesis. It was Eve who persuaded Adam to take an action that ultimately brought mankind into a post-Edenic state of existence as a fallen race. The power of a woman to persuade a man to do things that are either noble or dishonorable is well documented throughout history and not just the history of the Bible. But it's in the Bible too. There was the prophetess Deborah who convinced Barak to defeat Syria, one of Israel's very worst enemies. At an important time in his life, David was kept from rashly acting out of anger by godly Abigail and by making a poor decision that would have permanently marred his reputation. The implications of that and the consequences of that were very far-reaching. For had David acted out of his impulsiveness, he would have destroyed the confidence that the men had in him who had gathered around him in the wilderness, in whom, as a shepherd, he was building godly character. They had been deadbeats, and they had been scamps, and scallywags, and con men, and petty thieves, and they resorted to David, and David took these men and help mold in them integrity had he acted out of his impulses at that moment and not been stopped by godly Abigail, they would have begun to look at David differently and slowly, one by one, or in groups of twos or threes, they would have left him until his big following in the wilderness dwindled down to nothing. And we probably never would have heard of David, but for Abigail stopping him as he was on his way to kill Nabal. A godly woman preserved his destiny. And how many men are there that can say, if it were not for this woman that God gave me, I would have messed up my future. She helped me see a different perspective and helped me to take the right position and kept me from doing things that that would have cost me. And for that reason, men, we ought to be very grateful for the women that God has put in our lives. Can I hear an amen out there? As someone once said, men, try praising your wives, even if at first it does frighten them. They'll get used to it. Amen. Amen. On the other hand, the power of a woman to dissuade a man from his destiny is equally well documented in scripture. There was Delilah who led Samson to his downfall. There was also Jezebel who became the embodiment of evil as she talked King Ahab into taking action that caused God to purpose in his heart to deal with them both in judgment. 
I want you to know that whether a woman persuades a man to do good or evil, it does not absolve that man from the decision that he then makes. You see, there are many people that are misogynistic in their their perspectives. They blame Eve, for example, for the downfall of the human race. And there's some of that that exists in both Judaism, Islam, and in some parts of Christianity. But when you look at the story a little more carefully, you will find that that direction of blame is misdirected. It's misplaced when you lay it at Eve's feet, and I'll tell you why. When you read the scripture carefully, you will find that when God spoke to Adam and said, you see that tree over there? Don't eat of that tree. That Eve wasn't even created yet. Go back. You'll be surprised to find that's in scripture. And rabbis say she was nowhere around yet. And so it was Adam's responsibility as the priest to his family to tell her once God created her what God's instructions for their lives were. And dad, it's always been that way. God's called you to be a priest to your family. Can I hear somebody say amen? Many women feel that role because of default on the part of the men in the family, but they shouldn't have to. And so whenever the serpent appeared to Eve, Adam wasn't 50 miles away on a business trip. We get the idea he was way back on the back 40 somewhere, you know, taking care of some chores. Oh, no. Adam was right there when Eve took the fruit and said, here, Adam, eat. And he took it. And he ate it. The point is he should have at that moment said, whoa, I forgot to tell you something, baby. I forgot to tell you the fruit of this tree we're not supposed to take. If we do, we're going to die. And so ultimately the blame for that is laid at the feet, not of Eve, of Adam. And that's why Paul says Eve was deceived, but Adam was in rebellion. Totally different story. Eve was deceived. Adam chose to rebel. Eve didn't know any better. The serpent tricked her. And so each one of these men, whether it was Samson, whether it was King Ahab, whether it was David, all of these men who had godly women beside them or ungodly women beside them ultimately were responsible for the choices they made. Women today have incredible power just as they did yesterday. But the power they display today is much more prominently seen. Women fill many significant roles in Scripture. In the Bible, their power was more, uh, as it were, subliminal. It was more hidden, but they still pulled the strings in many ways, as I've already pointed out. And I'm saying that today because I want you to know, women, you've got power that you might not even realize you possess. You can birth things, you can launch things that men often do not have the strength or the vision to be able to birth. And you might do it through your husband or through the men that God has placed in your life. The Bible has never held women back, but rather it has encouraged them to become everything that they could be in life. Culture might have held them back, but not God. For example, the greatest woman perhaps that has ever lived in terms of significant leadership was a young girl that lived in the first century following the birth of 
Christ. And that girl actually was the one who birthed the Christ. And her name was Mary. And that woman had the responsibility of providing leadership to the child that would grow up and be our Messiah. Yeshua Yamashiach. Jesus Christ the Messiah. King of kings and Lord of lords. Set on her knee. Nursed at her breast. Held on to her skirts while he was growing up. Amen. Women today are successful CEOs of five, Fortune 500 companies. They are successful wage earners. They are teachers, astronauts, professors. They are doctors and attorneys. And they feel nearly every other significant position in history and in our world today. During this pandemic, men have been laid off and some women have continued to work. Thank God for the fact that you've still got a wage coming into your home. Amen. I look back in in more recent history, Harriet Tubman was born into slavery, but rescued more than 300 slaves and in the process started the Underground Railroad. It wasn't a man, it was a woman that did that. Did you know she came to be called Moses? That's what they literally called called her Moses because she became a leader and a savior of her people. Twon't me, she would say when asked how she did this, said twon't me, twas the Lord. I always told him, I trust to you. I don't know where to go or what to do, but I expect you to lead me. And he always did. That's what she said. Because when you trust God, mother, when you trust God, little lady, God hears a mother's prayers as I'm about to show you. Yes, he does. God hears the prayers of those that birth significant things into life, whether it's a movement or a son or a daughter. Women were prophetesses in scripture and still are today. One of the best pastors I ever knew was Marilyn Gazowski, who pastored in San Francisco, California. I don't know if any of you remember many years ago, she came to the old location and preached for us one time. We, we Back in the day, we had night services on Sunday night. That was many years ago. I'd only been here a short while. I've known Marilyn for many years. She's going to be with her reward, uh, to her reward and going to be with her God. Marilyn started a church in San Francisco after 32 different men were sent there by her denomination who tried and failed to succeed because of the opposition of spiritual and demonic strongholds that exist in that city. And she went there with a completely different attitude. She didn't go there to fight the spirits in the same way that men would. Strength against strength. Mono y mano. No, no, no. She went there as a mother. And she built the largest spirit-filled church that existed at the time in San Francisco. Jerry and I loved her. And we used to preach for her. We used to stay in her home. She was, she literally went there and became a mother to the hurting and the disenfranchised in that city. And she built her church out of drug addicts and people that, that were in lifestyles that you can't imagine and doing things that you would be shocked to hear about. And as we stayed in her home, we stayed in a part of a home and, and used the restroom, uh, the bathroom that was there to get ready for services 
couches and we slept there at night as well. And, and she would say, this is the bathroom where men, grown men came to me and said, you got to do something, Sister Gazowski. I'm dying. I need God, but I can't break the hold of heroin in my system. And, and she said that they would ask her to lock her, them up so they could not get to drugs. And I know that people would think this is radical and probably call the police on her now. But she would lock them in that restroom at their wishes. And while they cried and shivered and shook and vomited all over the walls, three days later they would emerge and the hold of that drug would be broken. And she would pray them through to the Holy Spirit and they would give their hearts to God. And she built a church that way. She did. She did. The UK elected Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady, as its first female prime minister in 1979. Women hold a significant place in society. You say, I thought you was going to talk about Hannah. I just, I'm, I'm getting ready to get there, and it won't take me but a minute. Amen. France elected its first prime minister that was a female, Edith Cresson, in 1991. America's now at a point where it could seriously consider electing a woman president to guide the helm of our nation. If we could find one that embraced our ideals and before it's over, they will and people will rally around that candidate. But Israel, the people of the Bible, and this is what I want you to see, elected Golda Meir as their fourth prime minister in 1969. I remember her well. Thus demonstrating their confidence in a woman to lead years ahead of all of the other developed nations. So if you believe the Bible holds you back, you just don't know the people of the Bible very well, nor do you know the story of the Bible. The Bible empowers women. And of all of the roles that a woman feels, none of them is so important as that of a mother. Not a one of them. There are reasons why being a mother is so extraordinarily impacting to society. There are reasons why. Number one, mothers teach us about unconditional love. Have you ever noticed that? I've known through the years a number of men that were dads that gave up on their kids. I had a father tell me some time ago, I've cut my children completely out of my wheel because I just have to disown them. They've been in drugs and in and out of jail and in and out of prison and so many times. And, and he just said, I had to cut them out of my wheel. Amen. I can't support what they're doing. But that mother didn't feel the same way. Because a dad can disown a child, but a mother will never let that child go because she loves unconditionally. You can mess up and mama still loves you. And you can bring shame on the family and mama still loves you. And you can make decisions that are unwise and mama still loves you. And you can get in a lifestyle that is all messed up and upside down and mama still loves you. Amen. And through that, we come to understand the love of God. Yes, we do. Second, there's another reason that, that the role that a mother feels is so important, and that is mothers teach us about nurture. The care that God has for us is, the, is best comprehended when you look at a mother's devotion to her children. A mother put her son to bed the evening before his, first, his fifth birthday. This is a true story. 
And she was trying to communicate the idea of his birthday the next morning to him. So she said, Kevin, this is the last night you will be four years old. And she held up four fingers. Do you know how many you will be tomorrow? And little Kevin had been holding up four fingers all year long to show people how old he was. So he eagerly added his thumb to those four fingers and held it up. And his mama asked the question, do you know how many that is and how old you will be when you wake up in the morning? And he proudly announced, tomorrow I'm going to be a handful. Amen. I can promise you there's not a mom in this building that's ever raised a child that wasn't a handful. Oh, I know the mamas can agree with that. Amen. A mother's job is never done. And so mothers not only teach us about unconditional love, they teach us about nurture. And to nurture, you've got to be committed. And number three, mothers teach us about perseverance and faith. They never give up or quit believing in the potential of their children. True story. One pastor that I knew of told of how he and his wife were expecting their third child. And his wife was going through her closet and getting rid of clothes that she wouldn't be able to wear anymore. And their little son asked, Mommy, now that you're going to have a baby, are you going to start wearing eternity clothes? Amen. (laughs) And doesn't it feel like that, Mama? Whenever you have a baby, you're dressed for eternity. From the, I mean, you're going to be a mama as long as you live because mothers teach us about perseverance and faith. In closing, let me share with you these three characteristics of godly women. Number one, we see it in Hannah. Godly mothers have big problems. I want every mom to listen to me because Hannah was a woman of prayer. She was a godly woman. She was a committed woman. She was a church-going woman. She was not unfaithful. She understood fidelity. She was a person of integrity, but she had problems. Her problems existed because of a situation in her home that she couldn't fix. First Samuel 1 and 6 says, and her rival, that's the other woman, that her husband had married, provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. In 1 Samuel 1 and 11, she refers to that as an affliction. I don't know if it was a physical situation in terms of some illness that she had, or it was just that she was born unable to conceive, but it was an affliction in her mind. And in that society, if you couldn't have children and you were married, that was considered to be a mark of shame. And her rival, the other woman that her husband had married, which was permissible back in that day, amen, uh, she made Hannah's life just unbearable. I'm talking to mamas that have got problems right now. While I'm preaching, there are mothers that are sitting out here in this audience, and there are others that are watching the live stream right now. You've got problems, and they're big problems. And the enemy would tell you, you see, God doesn't care about you because all that church going, all that worship, all that commitment, all that dedication, prayer, what good does it do? Because look at the problems you've got. I want to tell you in Scripture that even 
godly mothers have big problems. Number two, godly mothers have big priorities. They've got their priorities straightened out because Hannah loved God in spite of her problems. She loved her husband. She didn't blame him for the cultural circumstance of the rivalry in her home. Can you imagine what dinner was like every Sunday? You understand what I'm saying? Of course, it would be the Sabbath for them. But have these rivals at the same table. I wonder what conversation was like there. Amen. She had big priorities. She loved God. She loved her husband. And when she had a family, she loved her family. And she loved prayer. And she knew where to take her problems. And that's the example that I think that we ought to glean from this story. Is that though she had big problems, she didn't give up on God. She didn't give up on her dreams. She didn't give up on what she needed in life, wanted in life, and pursued in life. What she did is she took it to God. There was no IVF procedure back then. There was no adoption capabilities back in that day or You couldn't go down to an agency and find a child if you were unable to have one, a child that had been abandoned. Families wanted and needed big homes because they were, the economy was based on agriculture. And the more people you had to work out in the fields, the better off the family would be. And she was very, very unhappy, but she took it to God and she prayed. In 1 Samuel 1, 12, and it happened that as she was at the house of God, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli watched her mouth, and he thought she was drunk, and went over and accused her and said, how dare you come to the house of God intoxicated? Now, that's a very kind translation because it said Eli watched her mouth. The original King James said he marked her mouth. And it literally means to strike. He walked up and slapped her and said, how dare you come to the house of God intoxicated. And she could have gotten mad and she could have resisted and said, I'll never go back to that church. You see the way that pastor treated me? I've got enough problems at home already. And then have to be in a situation to put up with this at church? No, uh-uh. I'm bailing. I'm I'm voting with my feet. I'm out of here. No, that's not what she did. She said, don't count me as one of those daughters of Belilah. I've not been drinking, but I poured out my soul to the Lord. I want you to know that when mothers do that, heaven listens. I'm going to tell you a story, and it's going to stretch your ability to be able to believe it. But it's a true story. It's well documented. I found it on the Internet as I was researching a mother's prayers. And just throughout time, I wanted to see the prayers that mothers have prayed and what God has done. It's going to, the story is incredulous. And I'm going to tell you that right up front. The story is of this, of a guy named Peter Richley. And he got on a boat in 1820 and got caught up in a series of circumstances, which really strained believability even though the story has been verified. In that year, he found himself treading water in the ocean because the boat he was sailing on to Australia sank. In that day, a boat sinking and then you being rescued was not really that big a deal. They didn't have the compartmentalized technology that exists in boats in the world today. They didn't have it back then. 
But they had a wall that went up, but if uh, you ripped a hole in the side of a boat, it started leaking, it just poured right over the top of the wall until the whole boat went down. It went from one compartment to another. So it was not unusual for boats to sink in storms. Neither was it unusual to pick up survivors. There were other boats that often traveled together, ships. And so they rescued Richley, Peter Richley. And the boat they rescued him, him in also sank. And then a third boat picked him up. And the third boat he was in sank as well. By this time, I'd get a rope tied on the stern, put a rowboat way back in the back and put him in it by himself. You know what I mean? The fourth ship that picked him up sank. I told you it's going to stretch your credulity, your ability to believe. But it's documented. And then that boat sank and a fifth boat picked him up, and five ships sank, and he was picked up, finally by an ocean liner called the City of Leeds, based out of England. And they were traveling also from England to Australia. It took but a short while. They got him dried off, and the ship's doctor pronounced him healthy, and before he settled down, the physician asked a favor of him, and he said, Sir, there's an old lady on board our ship who is headed to Australia to see her son. She's not going to make it. She's become very ill, and there's little doubt that she's going to die in the next several days. In her lucid moment, she keeps saying that she's on Australia to see, going to Australia to see her son that she hasn't seen in 10 years. 10 years. And none of us are able to comfort her because her heart is so heavy. She described her son. We, she knows all of us, all of the people on board this ship, the crew. We've all talked to her. But when she describes her son, strangely, he looks a little bit like you. In her fevered state, she won't really know the difference. Would you go and just say, hello, mom? And I just want you to be comfortable as... The Lord calls you to the other side. So after 10 years of not seeing her boy, that mama was lying in her cabin near death. And the ship's doctor carried her down the stairs to the cabin door and opened it and walked in. And when that mama in her fevered state looked up and saw that boy, that boy's jaw fell open and he said mama and began to cry because that was his mother lying in that cabin. You say what kept him alive through the sinking of five ships? I'll tell you what did. A praying mama got a hold of God. And I wonder how many of us here today are alive because a mama would not let us die. We're serving God because a mother wouldn't let go of us. Mama, I want you to know your prayers move the very throne of God itself. Yes, they do. And I close by saying that godly mothers not only have big problems and big priorities and learn how to take those problems to God as their greatest priority, Godly mothers dream big dreams for their children. 
1 Samuel 1, 27 through 28, this is what Hannah said for this child. I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I ask of him. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He shall be lent to the Lord, so they worship the Lord there. She had dreams for that boy. And she said, this is the boy that I've prayed for all these years, but I've got dreams that are bigger than him just being my son. I want him to be the spiritual voice to this nation. And she told Eli, you take him as soon as I wean him. I'm going to bring him to you, and you raise him right in the house of God. And this is what blows my mind. You look at Scripture, it doesn't indicate. I've not found any place anyway that indicates he was a Levite. It clearly says his father was from Ephraim. He was an Ephraimite. It calls him that. How did an Ephraimite come to be in the house of God, raised as it were the foster son of an elderly priest who was blind and could not see? But one night God acknowledged the legitimacy of that transaction when that mama gave that boy to Eli and said, raise him like he's your boy. I want him to be a voice to the nation. God stamped approval on that decision when he spoke and said, Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to his daddy, foster dad, as it were, uncle or some kind of relationship with a high priest. And he said, sir, you called me? And the old man said, no, I didn't. And he went back to sleep. And he heard it again, Samuel. And he called him. God did. And the boy got up thinking it was the old man and went into the room and said, sir, you called me? And he said, no, no, son, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. He went back to bed. And on the third occasion when God said, Samuel, and he went to the old man, the old man realized who was calling that boy. And he said, it's the Lord. You go back. And when he calls your name, you say, speak, for your servant is hearing. I don't know of anything any mother could ever want greater than to know that her child hears the voice of Almighty God. And God opened up Samuel's destiny that day. Could I hear somebody in the building say amen right now? You don't know the child that you're raising right now. You don't know the future that child has. But if you lend him to the Lord and you have big dreams for him, God may surprise you someday because mamas have big priorities for their kids. I've met mothers who literally introduced their children that big. This is my boy, the doctor. This is my daughter. She is going to be the psychiatrist or the scientist. This is my son. He's going to be the airplane pilot. You give your children dreams to live by. I'm done. I want to pray for every mother in this house as we get ready to leave. Would you stand with me, please? We can't have an ordinary altar service, as you already know. Can't assemble, can't get close. That's why every row is separated from the row you're sitting on from others so that you can have proper social distancing. You know what we did? We actually got a tape measure. It's six feet. So we know. Amen. When you stand up, you're six feet away from the person in front of you because we skipped that row. We measured it. We made sure they, 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 they measured that. And families are allowed to sit together, of course, but 
It's because you live together in the same home. But you know what it means? It means we can't all come down to the front and pray like we'd like to. also means that we're not able to lay hands on people like we'd like to be able to do and pray for sicknesses and anoint them. So you know what I'm going to do right now? Virtual hug to everybody. Amen. I love you more than words can say. And I bless you and I pray for you. And first I pray for the moms, Lord Jesus. I pray for them, every mother in this house. May you give her grace to continue on and for all those units of energy that they've expended in raising their children and are expending right now because their work is never done. Would you reward them? I pray for their children, that their children will be a, do- a joy and a delight to them, that you'll fulfill the destinies that you've spoken over those children's lives. I pray for every mother that's ever lost a child because that's a grief that is too hard for a human to bear alone. Life is not set up that way. We're not supposed to bury our children. They're supposed to bury us. But for those that are right now thinking of a child that they've had to lay at rest that they'll see someday, comfort them and give them grace and hold them up in the everlasting arms of God. While every head is bowed, if there's one person in this building that doesn't know the Lord, would you slip up your hand and say, pray for me, Pastor. I need God right now. Anybody? God bless you, dear sir. I see those hands. Anybody else across the building? Amen. While our heads are bowed, Lord Jesus, we open our hearts and lives. And those of you who raised your hands, pray this, and you mean it, and I'll help you form the words. And you just pray along with me. Forgive me of my sins, Lord, and come into my heart. Save me. Write my name in the book of life because I believe that you lived and died and rose again. And so, Lord Jesus, I ask you to be my Savior and sit on the throne of my life. And if you just prayed that prayer with me, I want you to then go on. And I want you to be baptized in water in the name of our Lord for the forgiveness of sins, following the example of Jesus. And number two, be filled with the infilling of the Holy Spirit so that you can have the power to live the resurrected life as a child of God. And number three, don't stop there. Go on, study the Word of God, become a disciple, become a member of a church. If you can, we'd love to have you be a part of this one. But you need to be connected to other believers. Amen. Be in fellowship with them. You need some other fellows in your ship if you're going to sail the seas of life successfully. So we welcome you to the family of God. And every head is bowed again. Is there one person in the building? Is there, or there a number? You'd slip up your hand and say, Pastor, pray for me. I just need prayer today. It's been a rough season. I lost my job. It's been a difficult place. God bless you. Raise your hand wherever you may be and say, pray for me. My family's all stressed out. Amen. Can I bless you? Can I, can I have a little fun with you? See this mark right here on my forehead? You know, there's so much stress that families are are almost killing each other. Somebody asked me, how'd you get that mark on your forehead? I started to have some fun. I guess I better explain how. I'll tell it on myself. I opened my refrigerator door and I swung it open and bent over to get something looking the wrong way and it swung back and hit me right on the forehead. 
Amen. It, it clobbered me a good one. So did I learn anything? Yes. When you open the refrigerator door, what's that door? It's out to get you. Amen. But I know families have gone through stress. Oh, my wife didn't do that either. <laughs> but I know families have gone through stress. I want to pray for all of you, Father. I pray for the love of God to be a constant component and ever-present in every home. Guide us through this pandemic. Lord, make our altars more meaningful than they've ever been. We're not able to rely on church services and great crowds to worship you anymore. We're having to learn to do that as individuals. We value going to church. David said, I was glad when they said unto me, let's go to the house of the Lord. And Lord, we can't wait to come back full steam ahead. But during this season, when we're having to navigate our way, I pray that you would make every person's relationship with you strong, meaningful, and powerful. In Jesus' name.